Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Next week, Nigerians go to the polls. We're going to talk today about the candidates vying to be president, challenges to the vote itself, and the state of the country Nigeria's next leader will inherit from incumbent President Muhammadu Buhari. Looking to upset the established order is Peter Obi. The 61-year-old former banker and governor says he wants to build a new Nigeria. Those who left, even the young people who are today living, they'll come back. We want to bring them back. Nigerians are prepared to come back if they can find that they have a country to go back to. The presidential election is shaping up as a three-way contest. Heading the ticket of the ruling party, the all-progressives Congress, is Boliti Nubu. He's a veteran Nigerian politician, traditionally kingmaker in the country's rich southwest. Atiku Abubaka, a former vice president from the north, is vying for the fifth time to be president, and a third candidate, Peter Obi, who we just heard about, is from the southeast, seems to have excited many young Nigerians. Opinion polls in Nigeria aren't always reliable, but recent polls put Obi in the lead. At a meeting in Abuja, one of the election commission's top chiefs warned that failure to hold polling in one area due to insecurity could affect the tiling and announcement of election results, leading to a constitutional crisis. The vote's taking place at a difficult time for Nigeria. There's the insecurity, jihadist insurgents, Boko Haram, or the Islamic State's West Africa province in the northeast, banditry in the northwest, violence between herders and farmers, separatist violence, including against election staff in the southeast. The campaign itself has also been heated, with inflammatory language by some of the candidates' supporters. Then, over the past few weeks, there's been another challenge, a crisis triggered by the government's efforts to introduce new currency and fuel shortages. Queues outside petrol stations and outside banks. Residents of Lagos wait for hours to get cash or fuel, but neither are guaranteed. The ATMs are not working. Even when you walk into the bank, they will tell you they are not giving that money, that they don't have the cash. I mean the new notes. So it seems as if this is the only bank that is dispensing money. Many Nigerians handed in their old banknotes, which have been phased out, but haven't been able to pick up new ones, leaving them strapped for cash in an economy that in much of the country is largely cash-based. That's provoked a lot of anger, and the currency and fuel shortages also raise questions about election logistics. So what should we expect from the vote next week? Can Peter Obi really prevail? And given the insecurity and identity politics shaping the election, what should we make of Bukhari's eight years in office? I'm extremely happy to be joined today by Namdi Obasi, Crisis Group's Nigeria expert, who's joining us from Abuja. Namdi just authored Crisis Group's latest report looking at risks of violence around the elections, and also Ayoobi, a Crisis Group trustee, a lawyer, and a human rights activist who's joining us from Lagos. Namdi, Ayo, welcome on. Thank you for the invitation, Richard. So why don't we start then with the currency crisis, these cash shortages. This seems to be a self-made mess by the government and the ruling party. Yes, actually, you're correct. It's a mess. It's a mess on the ground at the moment. The government says it had to do this for several reasons. First, there were legal provisions for doing that, and it was well overdue. It also had to do it because um, lots of criminals were keeping money. And then President Buhari said pointedly that this was necessary at this time because he wasn't going to sit and allow people that had hoarded huge amounts of money to use them to mobilize thugs and to buy votes and to distort the results of the election. But then the time frame for the change of the currency was really very tight. And evidently, the central bank didn't have the capacity to produce as much notes as possible. So 
virtually all the old currency have been recovered to the system, but then the new currency is not available and people are in an extremely difficult situation at the moment. To my mind, there were two aspects. One was the monetary policy, the central bank's long-term ambition of having a cashless economy. And the other was this idea of we were going to take money out of the system, specifically at this time because of the elections. There's been a complete moral panic about the idea of people buying votes. But at this stage, for most people, it looks as though, as the saying goes, you don't chase rats out of your house by setting the house on fire. And that seems to be what has been done. Because the monetary policy, we are never going to have a cashless society. We can only have a society with less cash. And even for people living in the urban centers, I live in the middle of Lagos, to make your payments by a cashless system is now proving to be next to impossible or to take at least three or four attempts. The infrastructure for cashlessness is simply not strong enough. And for the kind of amounts that many people are dealing with, you're buying your roasted plantain for 200 naira, you're buying a loaf of bread for even 500 naira. These kinds of money, you're not going to spend time online transferring money by electronic means. And we don't have the system of tap and pay as you have in some other countries for small amounts. And I think the president, the impression he conveys is that he wants to make sure that the election is credible, free of violence and so on. So the argument about not paying thugs. But um, the reality is that if you are a politician, having access to these sums of money that you need for such things is not a problem. So it's very surprising if there would be a shortage in the hands of politicians. How is this impacting the elections preparations, the work of the Independent National Election Commission? Yes, the INEC chairman, the head of the Independent National Electoral Commission, he has consistently sounded optimistic about the elections. But beyond that, people are very skeptical about how all of this is going to work out. The Electoral Commission is employing ad hoc staff. It says it will pay them electronically. But then they need to travel to polling units. And again, how do they handle the logistics? Lots of military and police personnel are going to be employed for election duties, and they need to be paid their allowances. And even if they are paid the allowances electronically, they still have to buy food and water and so on and so forth with cash. So certainly this is going to affect the elections if it's not resolved very, very quickly, if cash is not provided within the next one week. But then also the fact that while the government says it was trying to prevent politicians from, you know, hoarding money, but again, as Madam Ayo just mentioned, politicians don't have a problem with getting through the system. And then at the end of the day, because people are more impoverished, because they are deprived of cash, they become more vulnerable, you know, to vote buying. So this may actually backfire and corrupt the voting system more than even before. And to make things even more complicated, from what I understand, the currency crisis has come on top of fuel shortages. So it's very difficult to buy gas at the moment in Nigeria, despite the fact that in principle, Nigeria is a big oil producer. Well, we've had a situation where the government is still yet to have its local petrol refining capacity actually come on stream and make an impact on the supply of petroleum or gas to the Nigerian market. Although I happen to live in a part of Lagos where the main street that we have to pass through to get anywhere has six petrol stations on it, 
And often we can't even get out of our street because of the petrol queues. So I can say that those queues have gone down. It's not quite as bad as it was. What it will have is an effect on the outlook of the voters and how they perceive the way the government has, quite frankly, messed up their lives. And that's why you see the candidate of the ruling party taking quite some steps to distance himself from the policies that have led to the petrol shortage and the cash shortage. In fact, Bolotinubu, the APC's presidential candidate, is arguably the candidate that's most critical of his own government's policies with the currency and with the fuel. I mean, how is he managing to distance himself from policies that the ruling party which he's part of and which in principle backs his candidacy is responsible for? Yes, in a sense, as you said, he's, you know, part criticizing the government and then part also has to justify the actions of the government because this is part of the legacy that he wants to continue when he eventually gets into office. So it's difficult, but it's a reflection of... um, splits within the party, within people who want him, as he says, there are people within the presidency who don't want him. And Andy, tell me if this is wrong, but didn't the Senate leader from the ruling party, the APC, actually say ahead of the party primaries that the party's preferred candidate was someone else, not Tinubu? Yes, the chairman of the party, uh, Adamu Abdullahi, had announced on the eve of the primaries that the candidate of the party would be Ahmed Lawan, the president of the Senate. And then there were others within the party, like the vice president, Yemi Shimbajo, and others as well who were running for the same post. So it's a feeling that Tinubu rolled over them because of his resources deployed at the primaries. And so there's some split within the party. And Tinubu feels that this fuel crisis, and especially the cash crisis, is all orchestrated to work against him. And what about relations between Tinubu and President Buhari himself? What, they joined forces ahead of the 2015 elections that brought Buhari to power under the APC umbrella, and by uniting, they brought together the votes of Nigeria's two big vote banks from the northwest on Buhari's part and the southwest on Tinubu's part. So in some ways, doesn't Buhari owe his presidency to Tinubu? I think, Richard, that um, yes, in 2015, the joining together of Bola Tinubu's group with the group of President Buhari was what created the majority that was able to overwhelm the then incumbent ruling party, the PDP. But after the election, President Buhari, he had, of course, um, Vice President Yamiyo Shimbajo as running mate, and he also appointed people like former Governor Fashola of Lagos State the governor who immediately succeeded Tinubu as governor of Lagos. That was apparently not done with the input of Tinubu, and there seemed to be something of an attempt by President Buhari to distance himself from Tinubu. And so Tinubu, he's actually not been part of the government that has been in power. He's been the leader of the party of the government. And that's why you find, as Namdi said, there's this trying to distinguish between the president and the presidency. That is to talk about a cabal, cabal being the latest Nigerian word for people plotting within the presidency. And the feeling that some people within the presidency didn't want him to win as Buhari's successor. 
But on the other hand, you've seen recently the vice president appearing on one of his committees of his election campaign. You've seen the president himself personally coming out and campaigning for Tinubu and saying, and most recently he was in Imo State, to say that this is my candidate, you should vote for him. So he's talked the talk. But the question of whether he has been somewhat indifferent to the impact of the policies, particularly the cash crisis and the fuel crisis, on the mood of the electorate, whether he's been indifferent to that is open to question. There's a famous picture of the president relaxing and picking his teeth with a toothpick. And it sort of suggests that level of detachment to think that he's ready to be out of there. And, well, it would be nice if this man succeeds, but... (laughs) Right. And Tinubu himself, what his political roots are, or he was involved in the struggle against the military dictatorship in the 1990s. But over recent decades, he's known as this powerful and wealthy kingmaker, this political godfather in the southwest. His background is that he was a supporter of the pro-democracy movement during the times of military dictatorship. But um, we are now more than 20 years into the post-military era. And many of the young voters who are coming to vote now, they're not aware of that history. And there has been a steady diet of Tinubu as godfather that has been um, fed, particularly since 2003, when we had possibly the worst elections in our history in terms of the um, credibility of the elections. But Tinubu was the only governor in the Southwest who survived the PDP's victories in, in that year. And he then led the fight back against those victories in the courts. The difficulty that any politician now who had relied on old methods of rigging is that the new technology may make it harder for you if you don't actually have people who are coming out to vote. Yes, just to add a bit to what um, Madam Aya said, I think there's also a feeling, a mood, as, as you know, that we have more youthful voters now than before. Many do not reckon with the pro-democracy movement of the military era. There's a, just a demand for better governance at the moment. And so lots of the younger voters also think that Tinubu, along with a lot of older politicians, are part of the country's problems. And there's a kind of shift in preference between generations and the yearning for more active, more energetic kinds of leaders. And then, again, there are some people who also feel, well, Tinubu said, it's my turn to get into office because I've done a lot for people in the past. So that tends to work against him. But of course, I must say that he has tremendous reach across the country. He's built a lot of political capital over the years. And of course, he's the national leader of the ruling party. And that gives me a great deal of strength. I want to come in a moment to Peter Obi, this candidate of the Labour Party who seems to be attracting a lot of youth support. But just before we do that, could we just talk for a moment about the PDP candidate, Atiku Abubakar? So he's certainly not a fresh face in Nigerian politics. He was vice president for eight years under Alushigun Obasanjo and has contested the presidency, I think, five times. Is this going to be his moment or does that seem unlikely? Well, I think that the difficulty for former Vice President Atiku is that many of the biggest challenges are coming from within their splinters from the People's Democratic Party. 
Peter Obi was from the People's Democratic Party, although he had been in another party before. So um, Atiku has already seen some of his support leeching away. Then on top of that, he is facing the concern that the oscillation between North and South in Nigerian politics would be disrupted if he were to be elected. And um, some of the governors in his party have also expressed their displeasure, led by the governor of River State, who himself contested for the PDP ticket. And so they have also been lukewarm, have not been attending his campaigns and so on. And Ayo, this is this informal understanding among Nigerian elites that the presidency alternates between the north and the south and indeed also rotates around Nigeria's political zones or region. Yes. Well, I mean, the, the main thing is the oscillation from north to south. There is, when we come to Peter, we will talk about the issue of rotation among the different political regions. But at the moment, certainly the Atiku presidency would mean that we had a Fulani president for eight years and then another Fulani president for at least four years. And nobody ever believes people who say that I will step down after four years. Mirandi may speak better about the impact of his campaign in the north, but in the south, I think it's been somewhat muted. I would totally agree with Madam Ayo about Tiku's campaign. First of all, it's in the southwest, there's more of the Tinubu and Obi influences. In the southeast, which had been a consistently strong PDP territory, now Obi has taken away a lot of that PDP support. But then there are also other factors. First, because he is um, perceived as part of the old brigade that has brought the country to its knees, so to say. That's one. Secondly, he doesn't have a distinct message that is any different from what he had always been saying. So he doesn't strike anybody as a candidate that in office would do things dramatically different. But also fundamentally is the fact that his presidency is seen by many as um, in the South, especially, and in the Middle Belt, as a continuation of a Northern Muslim rule, continuing eight years after Buhari. And this is coming within the context of deterioration in the relationship between the Fulani, especially, and other groups in the country. His supporters also think that he still has very good chances in the North, that he'll win substantial support, but it's very difficult for him in the South. Can I ask, before we get to Obi, Tinubu, so the ruling party candidate, I mean, he's from the southwest. He's Yoruba, a big ethnic group that's the majority in that area. But like Atiku, he's Muslim and his running mate, the former governor of Borno State, is also uh, a Muslim. And is that less of an issue than the regional question, than upsetting the north-south rotation? Or is that also seen by some Nigerians as a problem? It's a problem for some Christians. And certainly we've already had the Roman Catholic Church saying that it is not going to advise its followers to support the ruling party. Not necessarily because of the Muslim-Muslim ticket, but it did lose um, Governor Tinubu a lot of support from the Middle Belt, at least in the Plateau, Benue regions, where in times past, the cutting edge between Muslims and Christians had always been. And of course, the southern governors, when they met, said that the presidency should go south. Northern governors in the APC had also said the presidency should go south. They carefully avoided saying which part of the south it should go to, because the reality is that 
although we have had presidents from the South and we have had Muslim presidents, we have not had Muslim presidents from the South. And because the bulk of the votes are in the North, it's difficult for a Muslim from the South to pick a running mate who is going to be a Christian. It will certainly lose Tinubu some votes, but I think it was a calculated risk that Tinubu took in picking a northern Muslim as his running mate. Just to add to that, Tinubu insists that he didn't choose Shetima as a Muslim. He had to choose competence over religious considerations. And he has repeatedly um, pledged that in government, he would not be biased in terms of religion. He also points out that even his wife, who's been married you know, for many, many years, is actually a Christian, and there's no pressure to convert anybody from one religion to another. But in spite of all his explanations, there is still misgivings about his Muslim-Muslim ticket. All the major Christian organizations, the Catholic Bishops' Conference, Pentecostal Fellowship of Nigeria, Christian Association of Nigeria, all of them have said this is an attempt to marginalize the Christian community, to exclude them from government. So it's going to cost him a lot of Christian votes in the South and especially in the Middle Belt. But then also, it's, I think it's also a, a pragmatic decision for him in the North because he needed to get Northern votes. So that then brings us to Peter Obi uh, running on the Labour Party ticket. So he's a Christian from the southeast, but I don't want to make this all about regions or religion. He also seems to have attracted a lot of support, including in other parts of the country, generated this excitement among younger people, civil society, with this idea that he can break the grip on power of the older generation. And even some, as we heard up top, some opinion polls have put him ahead. So should we believe all the hype about him? I think you should take it with a pinch of salt to some extent in the sense that the articulate people who are, are the ones who are supporting him, it's been described as the phenomenon of the educated urban elite. And um, at least as regards the question of voting outside the Southeast, because the vote in the Southeast is a very tricky situation where you still have some of the separatists who have said um, that there isn't going to be any Nigerian election in the region and they're not going to allow people to vote. And on the other hand, you've had those who said, yes, we still keep our eye on separatism, but this is a chance for Nigeria and Nigerians to show that they actually want the Igbos inside the Federation and, and that they are ready to accommodate them. And that's why you find some of the um, groups such as Afenifere, which is a Yoruba social, cultural, political group, coming out in support of Peter Obi because they think it's time for an Igbo presidency. And just to remind people, I or the Igbo have not held the presidency, at least not in the Fourth Republic since 1999. No, they've never held the presidency. And... Um, the problem for him in the southeast is that the numbers are very small and they're being suppressed by some of these um, threats of don't you participate in Nigerian elections. So he has to make his appeal outside his region. He's focused much of his effort on the Christian electorate and on the electorate in Lagos. He's also focused on the youth and on, as I said, the urban educated elite. What do you think explains his appeal among young people? He himself is not that young, but 
he does seem to have captured the imagination of many young Nigerians, at least, again, if you believe the people that are talking to the media. His campaign also comes a couple of years after these mass protests in Nigeria, in SARS protests against police brutality, but also capturing young people's anger at what they perceive as inept successive governments. I think he strikes the young people as a different kind of politician. During his years as a governor of Anambra State, he ran a relatively clean government by Nigerian standards. Accounts were very well audited. He also did very well in terms of education, investment in human capital development, for instance. So he strikes the young people as somebody who wouldn't dip his hands into the coffers of the government. In fact, they say he's stingy with government money, but he's a very accountable type of person. And he comes across also in his campaigns and says, trust me, hold me responsible if anything fails. And that is a very strikingly different message from what we've had under the Buhari administration, in which every blame is put at the old party that was in government, at the international community, at always there's somebody else to blame. But he says, hold me responsible for anything that happens. So that message, you know, resonates better. But I must also say that he also has very serious hurdles to cross. The Southeast, which is his home base, so to say, is only 11% of the electorate in the country. But even that is going to be depressed by the insecurity in the state following the rise of the armed wing of the Biafra secessionist agitation. So that's going to depress his um, strength. Secondly, is the fact that he's running with Labour Party, which has been, over time, a very weak party. In the last election in 2019, Labour Party presidential candidate won only a little over 5,000 votes, which came to 0.02%. So he's a very strong candidate of a very weak party, if you like. And then, of course, while two consecutive polls by Bloomberg have put him in the lead, the number of polls locally have also put him in the lead. But these polls have to be taken with a huge amount of salt because um, the samples are too small. They tend to be more based on um, urban people who have access to phones and the internet and so on. They don't reflect at all the reality on ground, especially in the north, where there's lots of people who are not connected to the internet. Could we come then to the insecurity that threatens the election? So the array of threats that we heard about up top, so Boko Haram in the northeast, not as powerful as it was, but still a menace, the banditry in parts of the northwest, this uptick in herd of farmer violence, the Biafra separatism that you talked about, plus armed groups in parts of the Delta and elsewhere. So how is all that going to shape election preparations and then the vote itself? Well, first of all, just like you mentioned, we are having uh, wider security challenges than we had in the past. Um, Boko Haram and then later Iswap, you know, were there in the northeast during the 2015 and 2019 elections. Yes, in some respect, they have been pushed back from the positions they held. But many areas in the northeast are still not secure. Then in the northwest, we now have a deteriorated situation than in the past, activities of bandit groups. And then in the southeast, we have the Biafra agitation and criminal organizations that are claiming to be Biafran organizations. But what we find then is also more persistent attacks on the offices of the independents National Electoral Commission, especially in the Southeast. And this is 
very, very upsetting because it's targeting election infrastructure and election processes. We've also seen politicians were either attacked. Um, a senator from Anambra State was attacked. His police escorts were killed. A former governor in Imo State was attacked. His police escort was killed. Um, just last month, a local government chairman was kidnapped and eventually beheaded. And then the video of the beheading was um, put online for people to see with a chilling warning that this is going to happen to others. And we've had warnings by a faction of the indigenous uh, people of Biafra group, the leading group in, in the Biafra agitation, also saying they would not allow elections. There would be a sit at home on election day and anyone who comes out, you know, will be killed. So all of this is affecting election preparations. The insecurity is having a greater impact on this election than any election we've had in the past. So that's the wider environment in which the elections are taking place. But then you've also had this political polarization, right? Not unusual for Nigerian elections, for, for many elections, but some quite sharp language among the candidate supporters. Also, you have candidates with a lot riding on the vote. It's probably Tinubu's, Atiku's last shots at the presidency. Well, first of all, yes, there's always polarization around elections in Nigeria, but it's also very pronounced this time around. If you go back, the 2019 elections was between Atiku Abubakar and um, Muhammadu Buhari, basically two northerners, two Muslims, two Fulani. So it wasn't like what we have now, where you have Obi and Ibu from the southeast, a Christian, Tinubu, a Yoruba from the southwest, a Muslim, and then Atiku Abubakar, a Fulani from the northeast, a Muslim. So identity issues come up more clearly now than in 2019. But there's also the fact that the herder farmer issues and the Buhari's management of religious and ethnic diversities and so on seem to have created a lot more sensitivities this time around. So on the whole, these issues are a lot more pronounced now than they were before. And do the candidates themselves play on that though? I mean, from what you said earlier, it seems almost as though they're trying to play those identities down in some ways because of the difficulties of mobilizing other votes. Plus, haven't they also made this sort of pact to avoid hate speech, to avoid sort of divisive campaigning? On the surface, the candidates, they have signed the peace accords and so on, and the language is unifying and so on. But when you scratch below the surface, you will find that there is still a sense of, I want to appeal to my identity groups. So, for example, there was a point at which we heard um, former Vice President Atiku saying that um, to people, you need to vote for a northern Muslim like me. And he was, of course, he was speaking to a northern Muslim audience. You had Peter B when he was speaking to some church leaders saying, church, take back your country. You have um, Tinubu and his, um, the expression in Yoruba is, it's my turn. He was speaking to a Yoruba audience. So they talk the talk on the surface, but I wouldn't say that the subliminal messages about, look, vote for me because I'm like you, are not also being passed. Now, they have also, at the same time, to reach across their identity portfolio, so to speak, and reach others. But when you hear the supporters, for example, of Peter B saying that he can take Lagos because the majority of um, people in Lagos uh, who are going to vote are Igbos, or that the efforts are on in Lagos to prevent people with Igbo names from being able to collect their voters' cards, without which they will not be able to vote. 
that message is going around and it is stoking the ethnicity angle of the debate. I think in Yoruba land, the religion part is not necessarily such a big factor simply because everybody has Muslims and Christians in their families. I think you should also look at, because Atiku was the vice president and Tinubu was the governor of Lagos State, where you have a wide demographic from which to choose. Tinubu can point and say, look, I've appointed Igbos, I've appointed other people to my government when I was the governor of Lagos State. So that's another reason why you should understand that I'm not going to be a bigot or an ethnic um, champion. And the fact that there are three frontrunners, it's, it's a three-way contest, which is in contrast to previous elections. Now, certainly in the Fourth Republic, there's never been a runoff election. I think to avoid a runoff, it's not 50% that a candidate needs, they just need 25% of votes in two-thirds of states, which is why there's never been a runoff before. But with the three-way contest, is there a greater chance? Or is that still unlikely? Well, I think that it's very likely that whoever wins will get 25% if the person who wins is either Tinubu or Atiku. But if Peter Obi were to come out ahead, then it is possible that he might not have the 25% in the number of states that he needs. And that's not so much because of him as a candidate, but because of the animosity against the kind of language that was used against Northerners, attached not to him, but to some of his more vocal supporters. And how do you think the candidates themselves would respond to losing? So what, in 2011, it was Buhari who questioned the results, his supporters rampaged for some days through the streets of northern cities, killing Christians, burning down their property. But since then, Nigerian elections have seen plenty of violence before the vote, but generally losing candidates have taken disputes to the courts. How do you see that danger this time around? I mean, going to court is a way of dousing the tension. But the reality is that the courts, certainly as regards the presidential election, have been very reluctant to set aside results. And we have to remember that it's actually very difficult to produce the evidence that would justify setting aside a presidential election. Now, with the bimodal voter accreditation system, you have a situation where you only accredited voters will count. So before you could have 500 people registered at a polling station but only maybe a 100 of them would be accredited. And the election magic would happen with the remaining 400 votes. But now it is only the accredited voters that must be counted. And if the number of votes or results at a polling station exceeds the number of accredited voters, not the number of registered voters for that station, but only the accredited on the day, then that whole result can be set aside. So basically voters get ID'd, not just when they register before the election, but also on election day. They're accredited through facial or fingerprint recognition, which means that they, you know, they actually have to show up to vote. You can't top the numbers up with ghost voters afterwards. So an important change in the procedure if it all works. But for the main contenders, does the quality of the election really shape how they respond? Or is it just more that it's more difficult for them with the new system to cry foul? Let me just come in a bit on that. With Atiku Abubakar, I must say that he accepted the results of the last election. He has not shown any disposition to violence and protest and so on and so forth. 
and he doesn't have a fanatical following. There's no cult around him that would, you know, uh, take to violence in the event that he loses. Big concerns, uh, from our point of view, are about Tinubu and Pitobi. Tinubu comes across as extremely confident of victory, and if he loses, uh, he's also going to point to some of the complaints he has already made, that the odds were already against him. He's complained that the currency and the fuel issues are all orchestrated to sabotage his campaign. I can't uh, prejudge and I can't say exactly his mind, but it will be difficult for him to accept the fact that he has lost in a situation where he said, this is my turn and I'm going to beat them silly. The same thing applies to P2B. P2B as an individual hasn't used any uncivil language. He's been very polite and then very clean in his speeches and so on. No incitement, no hate speech and so on. But we can't say the same about his supporters. They are considerably um, intemperate in their speech and in their uh, output on social media. Some of them cannot contemplate, even now, a situation in which P2B will lose, also encouraged by the polls results that have come out. So we can expect protests, an NSAS kind of protest, if P2B loses. If that will turn terribly violent, we don't know, but certainly if he loses, there will be a lot of protest among the, the young people. I think also, may I just say that Tinubu may say that there's a cabal against him, but that is not directly connected to the actual conduct of the election. It's for him to overcome the cabal and whatever they're doing and still get people to vote for him. With regard to um, Peter Obi, there is actual complaint, firstly about the way that um, the registration of voters was done and truncated, about the way that the permanent voters' cards are being distributed. So I think that there would be some basis for looking at the actual conduct of the election itself. And the ground is already being laid for that with talk of um, people with Igbo names in Lagos not being able to collect their permanent voters' cards, and some, although, of course, many have. So I'm just going to add a little bit more to what Madam Ayo said earlier on, that in the present situation, there could be grounds for disputing the election by all parties. First of all, we have a situation where obese supporters, quite a significant number, are students. Now, the federal government has ordered higher institutions, tertiary institutions, to shut down so that students can go home. But a lot of the students are saying, we don't even have the cash, so we can't even go home for the elections. Now, if the election is held in this environment and the Labour Party loses, P2B loses, then the supporters would say part of the reason was that a lot of our supporters couldn't get back to their polling units. If we have violence in the predominantly Igbo areas of Lagos on the countdown on the eve of the elections or on the election days, that can also be interpreted as part of why you know the party lost. That would be grounds for protest. If we have failures in the e-transmission of results, then that can also... So there are lots of reasons why, you know, this election, it's a very fragile situation and things could go well, but things could also go, you know, wrong and lend grounds for protests by the parties. So we're now just over a week before the presidential vote. What are the priorities between now and then to improve prospects for a credible election, a peaceful election, that candidates and their supporters accept the results? I think that um, we come back to the issue with which you started, Richard, which is the issue of the cash 
crunch that is affecting Nigerians. Whether or not it is going to um, affect the way that people choose to vote, it will affect the capacity or the ability of people to vote. And that is um, a, a problem that is not only crashing the economy, but it's also making the conduct of the election a difficult one. In addition to what Madam Ayo has said, I would again emphasize that the cash issue is critical to the success of this election. If we remain in this situation in which we are for the next two weeks, then that's going to have a very damaging effect on the election. So I think the first priority should be for the central bank through the commercial banks to ease the cash crunch that we have at the moment. Um, the, the, the second priority is for the security agencies. Um, there's not much they can do now to you know, roll back the armed groups, whether in the northeast, uh, northwest or the southeast, but at least to protect INEC offices from further attacks and then to protect also polling units from attacks on polling days. Um, but beyond that, the, the, um, there's a need also to step up efforts to ensure the integrity of the election process itself. There are fears of massive vote buying in a situation where politicians can no longer alter figures that uh, they used to do between the polling units, the coalition centers at state level, local government level, uh, before it gets to the federal level. They can't alter figures anymore because of uh, INEX introduction of improved technologies. So there's a fear that there's going to be a massive vote buying. So the government, and especially the anti-corruption agencies, civil society organizations, and so on, need to watch out very well and be able to prevent or flag you know, where this is happening. The Electoral Commission also has a, a major responsibility urgently. First, to make sure that its logistics are in place. If voting doesn't start in time in many places, if staff don't come in time, if the um, e-transmission of results fails, then you know that's um, a problem. But as I said earlier, cash and fuel are key at this moment. And so whatever happens in, in the elections, President Buhari will exit the presidency. It will be the end of his second term. How should we look back and assess his eight years in power? I mean, you've had the mounting insecurity we talked about, fraying intercommunal relations, now this currency crisis, economic woes like in much of the world. But also, how will people remember Bukhari's legacy? I think that it depends who succeeds him to some extent. There's certainly been a sustained narrative in the media that Buhari is a complete failure. And I remember watching a clip of one of the television or on-air personalities when the news came out that Buhari is going to campaign with Tinubu. And the presenter was angrily demanding, what is Buhari going to campaign with? And this was um, in the month that we were just seeing him open the second Niger Bridge. We've seen the um, massive increase in rice production, which had left Nigeria not so much at the mercy of the international um, um, food prices and so on. And um, so I think that Buhari, he came in and apart from his anti-corruption stance, which has tended to be something of a failure, he has come in to say that he's on a course correction that our massive dependence on oil is actually something that we needed to get away from as a country. And that there are some difficult things that we will have to go through in weaning ourselves off that dependence, although he had not been able to do 
removes the subsidy on fuel production. And he will also give the explanation of the COVID-19 crisis and so on. I think that if he is succeeded by Tinubu, Tinubu is not going to be a carbon copy, but he's going to the, the shoots that Buhari has planted, he will nurture some of them. But if he's not succeeded by Tinubu, then Atiku is very much still on the idea that there should be privatization. And Peter Obi, it's difficult to say because although he talks as though he also believes that Buhari has done nothing, he has actually made some statements which make it, which suggest that there are some things that the president has done in office that he would want to continue with. But I think the biggest issue that will affect Buhari's um, legacy is that although he did indeed drive back Boko Haram and Iswapi in the north, I mean, I turn out for Bring Back Our Girls, and some of the people from Chibok say that you can now conduct your, hold your weddings and so on in Chibok, which was the center of the, um, the, the, the kidnapping. But in the north, um, west, the, um, arrival of bandits has totally destroyed the, um, confidence that people had that having somebody with a military background would be a guarantee of their security. And, um, the kidnapping disease has taken hold. And neither the police nor the banking system have been able to arrest it. Uh, people pay huge ransoms and they're mostly left on their own. Yeah, just to add to that, I would say that there is um, a small but dwindling tribe of Buhari faithfuls who insist that, you know, regardless of the situation, he has done some infrastructure provision, a few roads and bridges and the railways and so on and so forth. Um, agriculture is um, boosted rice production. The country is in a less vulnerable situation than it was in the past and so on and so forth. But the vast majority of Nigerians think that this has been a failed administration measured against the promises that were made in 2015. Yes, there's been an improvement. There's no doubt at all. An improvement in the situation in the in the northeast, but then we have different kinds of insecurity now in the northwest, in the southeast, and on highways and so on. Basically, Nigerians feel less secure now than they felt in 2015. On the economy, it's also a very doubtful um, record. There's lots of young people, you know, getting out of the country. Lots of um, tech and medical um, professionals looking for greener pastures more than ever before. And then corruption, that was one of his uh, main promises. Uh, first of all, the Transparency International um, Corruption Perce- Perception Index isn't um, any better. It's actually slipped. But also very fundamental is his management of the country's ethnic and religious and regional diversity. Uh, There's a feeling that he has terribly mismanaged this. This is why we're having in aggravated um, Biafra agitation, some emergence of self-determination groups, discontent in the middle belt, and so on and so forth. It's um, a a less cohesive country, you know, than we had in the past. So um, it's at the moment, it's not looking good, a legacy for him. But again, I must say that this happens sometimes. Uh, 2015, Jonathan was looking very bad. But then by the time he accepted the results of the elections and so on, people look back at Jonathan now in a more favorable light. And perhaps in the same way that good luck. Jonathan is now remembered 
more fondly for giving up power, that might work in Buhari's favour now. I mean, there's not been a hint that he wants to extend his term past constitutional limits. He can't wait to go. Right, and especially given the backsliding in some other West African countries, that's important. Yes. On the positive side for Buhari is that he has not shown any inclination to stay on, to stretch you know, his tenure. He's totally respectful of the constitutional limit of um, two terms. Secondly, he has been very respectful of the Independent National Electoral Commission. He is not in any way tampered with it. It's given it all the resources it needs to function. And then in the end game, he keeps saying, I want Nigerians to be free to vote for whom they want to vote for, even though he's campaigning for Tinubu. But on the other hand, he comes out as someone who is respectful, you know, of the wishes and choices of the people. And this is very healthy for Nigeria's democracy. And that will count in his legacy. Nandi, Ayo, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Richard, for the invitation to participate. Thank you very much. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. You can find all of our work on Nigeria. Look out for that report we mentioned up top on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org. Write to me directly, outward at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Next week, I think we're probably going to do an episode to mark the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I don't think you're going to find anything like that anywhere else. So I hope very much that you'll tune in.